By August 1637, the antinomian controversy had grown so heated that people as far away as Barbados were writing about it. And to help resolve it, Massachusetts Bay planned to hold the synod which Shepard and Cotton had been discussing for months. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. Hooker, who was comfortably settled in Connecticut, didn't approve of using a synod to determine who was right in a theological controversy, arguing that since the people presiding over the synod would have their own opinions, it was an improper and unreasonable way to establish the truth. Hooker felt that each town should deal with the issues on its own and then send delegates to a colony-wide meeting where each would put forward its own ideas and concerns. Such a system may be harder to control, but in cases as controversial as this, even determining simple truths could cause needless division and make things worse than they already were. The Synod went forward, though, and despite Hooker's reservations, he went to Boston to prepare to participate. The Synod was held at Newtown and was open to the public, and all the magistrates attended, along with 25 ministers, including Hooker, and New Haven's Davenport. Cotton was too involved in the crisis to be objective, so they chose Hooker and Bulkley, who had helped found Concord, as moderators. As the synod began, Davenport gave a lecture, emphasizing the nature and danger of division and showing his opposition to the new opinions. In his speech, he also said that Only the children of church members should be allowed to be baptized, and this wasn't something that had gone on in New England up until this point, but it would actually become an enforced policy when Puritans took control of England and its colonies after the English Civil Wars. Another post-war development which was first discussed at this synod was a confederation of New England colonies. But in terms of the antinomian crisis, Cotton supported Wheelwright, and again, the two were alone. Shepard and a handful of others wanted to heal the divisions. And Weld and Peters led the majority, ready to stamp out heresy. It wasn't long before they'd listed 82 ways in which the opinionists deviated from the norm. And some of these opinions were declared to be blasphemous, others erroneous, and all unsavory. They'd also listed nine, quote, unwholesome expressions used by the opinionists. Weld published a list of the errors, and then they drew up an official document condemning the opinions as erroneous, and asked each minister to sign it. The biggest problem that Massachusetts had with the opinionists wasn't their denial of the doctrine of preparation. The problem was that the basis of their denial was in personal spiritual revelations rather than scripture. This emphasis diminished the necessity of the Bible and the law, and some opinionists specifically said that the law and the preaching of it was of no use at all to drive a man to Christ. Cotton was actually more dedicated to the importance of the law than most of the ministers who were opposing him, but he also believed that he still had control over the majority of the opinionists, and they had drawn attention to issues that he'd been fighting for years. 
Sure, a few wayward enthusiasts may have gone to the extreme, but they were in the minority and he could still show them their errors. It was too useful a movement to dismiss entirely. Cotton saw some of the opinions as heretical, but others were ideas that he'd been trying to advocate for years. And to condemn the ones that he disagreed with, he was being asked to condemn the things that he actively believed in. That wasn't something that he was prepared to do, so he refused to sign the document. Wheelwright was quiet. He wasn't going to back down, but he didn't have Cotton's reputation in the colony, and Hutchinson had used him to defend even the most unacceptable of opinionist ideas, many of which he didn't even agree with. He simply wasn't in a position to convince any one of his own ideas, so he'd been growing quieter for months, and he just wanted to get through the Synod without further damage or humiliation. So when presented with the list, he simply evaded, saying the proposed list of heresies was none of his business because they weren't blaming him for the ideas. The Bostonians in the crowd started to protest the proceedings and some walked out, but Wheelwright stayed put. The Synod went on for 24 days, and Winthrop did his best to keep the assembly civil, adjourning it every time the debate got too heated, and hoping that people could live in peace even if they couldn't agree. By this time, Winthrop was the hero of the majority of the colony, and even in Boston, he'd managed to rebuild his reputation through his moderation and amiability. Over the course of the Synod, Cotton started to see that the movement had gone beyond his control and far outside the bounds of acceptable theology. Some of the opinionists present even argued directly against him on the subject of the law, and so he finally accepted the document, saying that even the opinions he agreed with had been poorly expressed by the opinionists. He still wouldn't sign it, but he said he was fundamentally in alignment with the majority, and he was prepared to actively speak against the worst of the opinions. When he made this declaration, yet more members of the Boston church left in disgust. Wheelwright still refused to align with the majority, but now he was alone. There was no point in dragging the synod out any longer, so they ended it. There were still some disagreements, of course, but there was no more productive discussion to be had. The opinionist cause had been dealt a major blow. The discussion had been predominantly civil, and they had laid the foundation for the future unity without increasing antagonism. The general court, however, wasn't ready to be as accommodating to disagreements. Four days after the Synod ended, it dissolved itself and ordered a new election, and the new court was completely different. Only 12 magistrates had been re-elected, and 21 people had been elected who had never served before. Three members of the Opinionist Party had been elected, Coddington, Aspinwall, and Gogeshall. But on the whole, the new court was ready to do whatever it needed to, to eliminate the troublemakers and put a stop to Hutchinson's movement. They started with the Boston Remonstrance, that petition submitted the previous march to protest Wheelwright's treatment. 
The new court declared the remonstrance to be seditious and prepared to convict anyone involved of sedition. If Wheelwright and Hutchinson didn't stop preaching and stop holding meetings, they would be banished, and if the signers of the remonstrance didn't renounce their error, they could join them. As the court prepared to conduct the series of trials, it eliminated dissenting voices. Kogajal and Aspinall had either signed or defended the remonstrance, so the court dismissed them and sent them back to Boston with orders to send replacements which the court had named. Cotton thwarted the plan temporarily by sending a message ahead of them explaining the situation to Bostonians. So when Bostonians received the orders, they chose two of their own replacements to send to Newtown instead. But one of the two had signed their remonstrance, so the court refused him permission to take his seat and ordered that another person be sent instead. By the time the trial occurred, the court had gotten its way, and Coddington was the sole opinionist voice left. Then the court summoned Wheelwright, and Wheelwright again refused to confess his errors or to back down on the issue of his fast day discourse. They blamed him for Massachusetts's internal strife, and he fought them through the night. The next day, they sentenced him to disfranchisement and exile, and he told them that if he was truly guilty of sedition, the sentence should be death. But if the court decided to continue its proceedings against him, he would appeal to the king. And, and that's a good indication of how weird this situation had become. A Puritan who had been silenced by the king's church was now preparing to appeal to the king about being silenced by other Puritans. Within a day, he withdrew his appeal, though, and accepted his banishment. This was November, so the court allowed him to stay in the colony until March, when the harshest part of winter would be over, but ordered that he be silent as a preacher in the meantime. This court wasn't playing around, and it didn't care if it was compared to Laud's star chamber. Wheelwright, however, refused to be silent, so the court gave him two weeks to leave, and again ordered him not to preach in that time. Again, he refused, but it wasn't worth pressing the issue. It was a particularly severe winter, and Wheelwright spent it with the Indians, buying some land from them the next spring to found Exeter with a group of friends and family, including those who had been turned away under the alien law. There was a minor land dispute between a group of settlements, including Exeter and the Massachusetts colony, because Massachusetts claimed all of the land in the region on the basis of having built a house there two years before. And the settlers who were actually living there said that they'd bought the land from the Indians, which gave them the right to it. Massachusetts responded that the Indians only had a natural right to as much land as they could improve. The dispute was ultimately left on thought, but that was a rather new approach to the issue of land ownership. Buying from the Indians had been a convenient substitute to getting charters from the king. And now Massachusetts was saying that they didn't even have to do that. They had the strength and people to take what they wanted. And now they were arguing that they had the right as well. It was only a matter of time before Massachusetts did claim the land. And when they did, Wheelwright went to Maine for a while before asking Winthrop to allow him back into the colony. 
Winthrop agreed, and he moved back to Exeter before returning to England during the interregnum. But Wheelwright moved back to Massachusetts after the Restoration and lived there for the rest of his life. At that point, he received a full pardon, but his reputation never fully recovered. Wheelwright out of the way, though, the court turned its attention to Hutchinson. They summoned her to Newtown in front of all the clergy as well as the court, and her trial had the highest public attendance of any event in Massachusetts history to this point. The trial itself wasn't exactly well-structured. There wasn't a strict division of prosecutors, defense, and witnesses, and Hutchinson herself had no counsel. When she appeared, she was badgered, insulted, and sneered at, and though she was pregnant, she wasn't even asked to sit down until it looked like she might collapse. Witnesses ready to defend her were intimidated until they were silenced, and she was even pushed to give evidence against herself. The time for decency was over, and at this point, even Winthrop thought so. Winthrop laid out the accusations against Hutchinson. She had held unlawful meetings, and she had supported Wheelwright's seditious sermons, and although she hadn't signed it, she had also supported the Boston Remonstrance. And by supporting the Remonstrance, she had dishonored her father. Magistrates were, after all, the fathers of the Commonwealth, and the Remonstrance dishonored them. This bent the law more than Laud had ever dreamed of doing, but again, they weren't particularly bothered by this. At first, Hutchinson responded politely and meekly. She didn't think she'd ever dishonored the magistrates. All she'd ever done was hold meetings to instruct younger women, which was something instructed by the scriptures. Peters and Weld started to give their evidence, and Hutchinson noted that she was being persecuted for her own private discourse. She'd never signed the remonstrance, and she hadn't preached sedition. She'd held meetings, and she was being criminally prosecuted for things she'd said, at those private gatherings. She also denied that she'd ever accused the other ministers of being under a covenant of works. She'd only said that they preached one, like the apostles did before the ascension. She turned to Cotton and asked him to tell the court what he remembered of her private speeches, and he responded that he only remembered the parts which had made an impression on him. He told her that he had been grieved that she would make such a comparison between him and his brethren, but he'd always assumed that she only meant it as a small difference, not a fundamental one. The court emphasized the fact that Cotton considered himself to be more similar to than different from the rest of the elders. When Cotton questioned her, though, it was clear that he still fundamentally sympathized with her cause, and that he still didn't believe that she had committed heresy. And pretty soon he'd gotten a lot of the room on his side. He had very successfully defended her, and for a minute it looked like she would get off. But it was in this position of strength that she finally started to speak her mind. She insisted that she had had revelations from God directly, which, again, Puritans didn't accept. Suddenly, not only was she vulnerable again, but she'd also made Cotton look bad, and she'd showed Cotton just how far she had deviated from his doctrine. 
He still defended her, arguing that although some of her revelations were the result of deception, the concept of revelations in general was in fact necessary, and he tried to divide her statements into two categories, dangerous and fantastical revelations, versus ones flying upon the wings of the spirit. Cotton was fighting an uphill battle, and the rest of the court began to attack Cotton for defending Hutchinson, and Dudley was the first to strike. He demanded that Cotton tell the court whether he approved of Hutchinson's revelations as she herself had explained them, and Cotton responded that he wasn't sure if he fully understood her. When Dudley pushed, he said he couldn't bear witness against whatever providence that she had had from God, and a frustrated Dudley declared, Sir, you weary me and do not satisfy me. Coddington stepped in and tried to defend both Cotton and Hutchinson by saying that the only thing the court could prove against Hutchinson was that she had asserted that other members didn't teach the covenant of grace as clearly as Cotton did, and that they were in the state of the apostles before the ascension. And Winthrop replied that her delusions were worse than those of the enthusiasts and Anabaptists, and that her own speech, which she had just made before the court, was ample ground to convict her, even if nothing more could be proven. Coddington was adamant that she hadn't broken any law, neither of God nor of the country, and that therefore it was wrong to censure her. But he was up against more than numbers at this point. He was up against exhaustion and hunger. And as he defended her against more testimony from Weld, Elliot, and Peters, Dudley complained that we shall all be sick with fasting if this continues. So at this point, Winthrop put up the question of whether or not to banish Hutchinson, and all but three voted to banish. When he asked who disagreed, only two raised their hands, and the third, a man named Jennison, said that he couldn't raise his hand for either side, and that if the court required it, he'd give up his seat. The court didn't require it. They simply voted to sentence Hutchinson to banishment, and in the meantime, put her in prison in Roxbury under Weld's supervision. Hutchinson protested, saying, I desire to know wherefore I am banished. And Winthrop simply responded, Say no more. The court knows wherefore and is satisfied. With Wheelwright and Hutchinson gone, the court expelled each of the guards who had refused to accompany Winthrop, disenfranchised them and fined them 20 pounds, except for Edward Hutchinson, who was fined 40 pounds. They wouldn't have to pay the fines, though, if they left Massachusetts. Then the court summoned every person who had signed the Boston Remonstrance and gave them a choice. Either they could acknowledge their error and withdraw their names from the document, or they could be exiled. Ten renounced the petition and their signing of it, but five of those were immediately disenfranchised anyway. Then the court turned its attention to Cotton. Cotton was the most respected minister in Massachusetts, and he had a choice to make. He could back down and continue to be the central minister of the New England experiment, or he could stand his ground and get swept away, 
with Vane Hutchinson and Wheelwright. He decided to back down. He altered his preaching. He lamented his former sloth and gullibility. But he did make one last attempt to save Hutchinson. After the court trial came the church trial. And and after 10 more hours of grueling interrogation, she was excommunicated. But Cotton convinced the ministers to allow her to stay with him in Davenport over winter instead of with Weld at Roxbury. While she stayed at his house, Cotton and Davenport worked to try to convince her of the error of her ideas. If they could convince her to publicly recant, she could remain in Boston and continue to be a member of the Boston Church. And after weeks of discussion and gentle persuasion, she acknowledged that she had been wrong and agreed to do just that. The church held another meeting to hear her statement, and it was here that Wilson came down hard on her. He pushed her to say whether her judgment had been altered or just her expression of her beliefs, and though she avoided a direct answer for a while, she finally gave an answer. She said it was only the outward expression which had changed. She still had the same core beliefs, It was only the manifestation which was different. Cotton now saw that not only would he be able to help Hutchinson, she also wasn't open to correction from anybody, and she put him in a position of danger, weakening his ability to advocate for his ideas, not strengthening it. She didn't believe in the finality of scripture or the importance of the law, and those two things were non-negotiable. Denying preparation had been good, but preaching divine illumination at the expense of biblical supremacy was another thing entirely. He had tried that very day to correct her errors, but she proclaimed, I do not acknowledge any graces in us accompanying salvation before conversion. He could only respond, I confess I did not know that you held any of these things, but... Maybe it was my sleepiness and want of watchful care over you. Then he turned to the rest and said he favored excommunication and banishment. The church should consider whether it was for the honor of God and the church to bear with patience so gross an offender. He had tried to convince her of her errors, and in fact he had thought he had succeeded. And after a few others spoke... Cotton was the one to pronounce the sentence. He said he remembered how good she had been when she first came and how well she had fought the doctrine of preparation. And he told her that by falling into her errors, she had lost the honor of her former service. He said he hadn't wanted to believe the accusations, but they had been affirmed. The crowd stood by silently, almost in shock, and she walked through the crowd to leave the building. As she did, her friend and disciple, Mary Dyer, joined her, saying, The Lord sanctify this unto you. To which Hutchinson replied, The Lord judgeth not as men judgeth. Better to be cast out of the church than to deny Christ. Her family was already in Rhode Island building a new house, and she moved to be with them. 
The baby she'd been carrying during the trial died, and after her husband also died, she moved to Dutch country, to what's now the Bronx, where they lived for a year before she and her whole family, with the exception of one daughter, were killed by Indians. After Hutchinson's expulsion, the court required 60 of Boston citizens to deliver their arms and the town to deliver the ammunition stored at its forts. It also passed a law making the criticism of court sentences a crime punishable by fine, imprisonment, or banishment. And at this point, lots of Bostonians left for Rhode Island. Some were banished and others left voluntarily. As Winthrop had noted, though, many of them hadn't been particularly dedicated to the most controversial opinions. They'd simply gotten caught up in the mob mentality surrounding the opinions which seemed to derive from their core beliefs. With the movement's leaders gone, they were soon allowed to return if they renounced their opinions, and many did, and went on to become prominent citizens. Immediately after the banishment, though, the court threatened John Cotton. But Winthrop did protect him. Dudley and Peters, in particular, wanted to bring him to trial leading a group of people who felt that Cotton hadn't truly repented of his erroneous beliefs and instead had simply hidden them. They called him a Trojan horse through which the disputes of the country came. At a fast in December of 1638, Cotton lamented his spreading of dangerous ideas and said he'd been deceived by the opinionists because they spoke in words that were so similar to the ones that he'd preached. They also hadn't consulted him. Hutchinson had vain had never really approached him to discuss the issues, and even when Hutchinson had met with him, she left quickly. He had made a mistake. Convinced of his words, they forgave and forgot, and Cotton spent the rest of his life as the single most respected minister in America. He did consider moving to New Haven, but Winthrop persuaded him to stay, saying that his leaving would weaken Massachusetts's influence on England by showing the mother country that the colonists weren't theologically united. He agreed that he should compromise on doctrine for the sake of the Holy Commonwealth. After over a year of controversy, Massachusetts had moved quickly and ruthlessly to eliminate the opinionists. Some sociologists have noted that the colony's reaction was essentially a pragmatic one. It helped to solidify a structured society free from the chaos of individualism. The enforcement of group unity against dissenters is a prerequisite to social cohesion. Winthrop in particular wanted unity, and though he initially tried to achieve it using amicable moderation, when he realized that severity was more effective, he allowed the strictest of punishments to Hutchinson and her followers. The colony started to go back to normal, but it was a new normal, permanently changed by the heated controversy. The affair had solidified a model of government which distributed church power among different groups and ranks of people, It was neither a purely democratic system, nor one which gave church elders and ministers exclusive control. This was Cotton's plan for church government, and it focused on the idea of the church as a covenant among people. 
independent from the state, filled with individuals who expressed a permanent connection to the gospel, and a group which was neither too big to meet in one place nor too small to effectively carry on church work. And the affair also altered New England theologically, making it more works-oriented rather than less. Even Cotton had had to backpedal on some of his teaching to distance himself from Hutchinson after her exile. It was in this works-oriented time that John Eliot, one of the main opponents of the Opinionists, became known as the Apostle to the Indians. He and Shepard wrote the first American books on Puritan missions, and Eliot in particular did emphasize works prior to grace in the way that Hutchinson had accused him of doing. The colony began to preach more and more on the uncertainty of salvation, ultimately arguing that even the conviction that you were saved was a sign that you weren't, and developing a completely unique set of rituals to emphasize and cultivate this uncertainty every day from a very early age. The doctrine of preparation also remained an important debate in the colony, especially in the aftermath of the English Civil War, as Puritans took over the government in both England and America. A few months after the controversy ended, Lord Say pushed for Vane to be elected governor of Connecticut, but the people steadfastly refused. Vane, they said, was young, inexperienced, and simultaneously obstinate. They changed the rules so that no man could be elected unless he'd been in New England for at least a year, and they wrote to say and delivered the following assessment. He thinks it not enough to set the house on fire, but must add oil to the flame. They said that by his aspect, you'd judge him a good man, but he'd caused problems which were likely to remain for years. Not all men are fit for government, they said, and none are as dangerous as the one who makes his affection his rule. Vane went on to become a prominent parliamentary leader, but had a falling out with Cromwell after King Charles's execution. When Charles II was restored to the throne, he summoned Vane to try to make peace with him, but at the meeting, he decided that Vane was dangerous in the way that New England had said over a decade before, and Vane became one of only a handful of non-regicides to be executed by the new king. Dramatic as it was, the antinomian controversy was only one of two existential crises facing the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1636 to 1638. At the same time, the colony was also dealing with the Pequot War, and next week we'll go back a couple of years and examine that. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week.